Good day and welcome to What Scares Startups, the podcast that explores the fears, anxieties, and neuroses that beset founders of all shapes, sizes, and descriptions. I'm Matt Toner. I'm your host. I'm here with producer Mike. And we want to talk to you today about how startups can recognize, confront, overcome, and harness all those things that keep us awake at night. And to do so, we've got a large series of especially impressive guests that will unpack their wisdom, their learnings, the things that frighten them, and the things they've overcome. So stay tuned. This is What Scares Startups. This week, we have a very special guest and some very interesting commentary. And a lot of it comes back to the idea of the moonshot. The metaphorical moonshot was something people talked about back in the 60s. The idea of this larger-than-life, transformative race to a place that we had never been. And uh, it was not necessarily easy getting there. As people talk about it, it took us a few tries, a few false starts to actually pull this thing off. But doing so, and even the attempt to do so, changed so very, very much. So today, we use the term moonshot often to talk about startups, to talk about the goals we set for ourselves that should we succeed would transform our industry, our company, our space, our society in ways that are both good, sometimes bad, but even the act of doing so, even the act of failing changes everything for everybody. So today we have a very special guest, Stuart Gunther of Viaduct Ventures, a long, well-established and storied Silicon Valley veteran who's seen the moonshot from all points of the compass. He's been in the capsule himself. He's pressed the launch button. He's swept up the debris more than once. And so much goodness, so much information that we're going to have to do this in two parts. So this will be part one of two. Stuart Gunther, What Scares Startups, the concept of a moonshot, and how does that apply to what's happening to you in your company right now today? So let's go to Stuart. So today we've got Stuart Gunther, who is going to talk to us uh, from a very different point of view about the psychology of startups. So before we, we dive into that, Stuart, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background professionally, your background personally, your background in a family sense, you know, like when, what brought you to Silicon Valley and then what brought you to the investment space? So what brought me to Silicon Valley was my mom and dad. Uh, they met here uh, when both of them emigrated to the Valley as Silicon Valley was first starting in the, in the early mid 60s. Uh, they happened to live in the same apartment complex and met each other around the pool. And then uh, my sister and I became their progeny a few years later. So that's kind of the, the the genesis there. But in terms of what brought me into Silicon Valley itself is I have had the opportunity to be on both the buy and sell side of the equation. So what I mean by that is I've been had the opportunity to be both within startups and also on the investment side. And Silicon Valley, from a startup perspective for me, started relatively early in my career when I moved from you know, large cap companies and then I got recruited by my former bosses at one job to join them at a new startup. And then that, like so many other things, became a tremendous ride and a, a wonderful addiction. And while I was in the process of being involved with that first startup and going through my first Series A raise, uh, we raised $20 million back when that was a tremendous amount of money. Uh, the dot-com bust had not quite yet busted. And then it did. It burst uh, in early uh, 2001, although we didn't actually feel it until September of 2001. About that same time, 
my then business partner or soon to be business partner was in the process of becoming an angel investor. And the thesis that we had between the two of us, in all honesty, from our ignorance, was that there was just a communication barrier. There was a, a lack of, of equality and, and uh, uh, interaction between the different constituents. And if we could just get everyone in a room and treat each other equally and fairly, tremendous things would happen. And everyone meaning entrepreneurs, angel investors, and institutional investors. And uh, that led us to launch the Venture Capital Roundtable, uh, which still exists today. And we did that in uh, May of 2001. And uh, that got me started on uh, my pathway into the investor side. And so pulling it all the way forward to today, I wear two hats. I'm uh, with Viaduct Ventures. It is an early stage venture firm that focuses on late seed through Series A investments. Uh, we tend to orient around uh, big data and big data and AI related businesses, uh, some general software and some fintech activities. And then the other hat that I wear is with VC Pert, and VC Pert is an advisory firm uh, which works with both startups and large corporations that are looking to maximize their success within the startup sphere. Let me circle back to a couple of things you said because there's you know, some fascinating stuff there. We look at Silicon Valley today as this high-frequency startup ecosystem where you've got the corporates, the innovation labs, the pure plays, and there's this constant dance and interplay between them. But, you know, again, you've got historical perspective that a lot of us, you know, don't have. We think the, the tech space started in the dot-com days and nothing existed before that but fleets of pocket calculators and abacai. But um, when did Silicon Valley really become that nexus? Like, when did it really kind of hit that peak velocity where it was not just an engineering hub but became more of an innovation hub where you had more risk-taking behavior, where you had more people going to the, not even the metaphorical garage, the literal garage to start new companies? So there's, there's different ways of answering that. And so part of it has to do with at what level of intensity do you mean? So when we think of it as, as Silicon Valley as a comparison to other places, a very strong argument can be made that Silicon Valley that we think of today got its genesis in the 60s. Uh, it actually started a little bit before then, but let's just stay with the 60s. So when you were born, that was the start of Silicon Valley? Uh, very much. Very Stuart much. Gunther a little, little bit beforehand. About three years before I was born is when uh, uh, the initial genesis, and it has to do with an event. So the the... the See, I was thinking you might be a Christ-like figure you know, in a manger <laughs> or something off Mountain View. And, you know, when you arrived, the whole thing started. But but I guess not. It started a bit earlier. As I was saying, there was there was a, my, my parents emigrated to to what we now know as Silicon Valley. And, and what pulled them here was a tremendous growth spurt was happening. So Silicon Valley, I don't know how many folks know this, Silicon Valley was originally a carpet of uh, fruit trees, and a carpet of all types of agricultural businesses. In fact, one of the first uh, billion-dollar companies and fastest-growing billion-dollar companies in the globe actually happened. It was a seed company that happened in the 1800s, and uh, it was all focused around agriculture. And this was also a gateway, of course, uh, into the gold rush. So the Valley has had a boom and bust cycles actually consistently for well over 100-plus years. But what we think of today in terms of Silicon Valley this focus around technology. And I would argue, by the way, that those earlier points very much had innovation within it, though they didn't use that language. What we think about what is the traditional Silicon Valley of today, you can make an argument that it happened as early as when Hewlett and Packard decided to literally work out of their garage, the garage you can still drive by and visit in Palo Alto, 
Or another argument, and the reason I pull it forward into the 60s, is that's when we had two things uh, come together at the same time. The United States got really, really scared of Sputnik, and so it massively leaned into the space race. And that in turn caused us to look for any form of technology innovation to try and help us accelerate our path to the moon. And some very smart people decided that uh, semiconductors would have a meaningful impact on the way you could guide and direct things like missiles or spaceships. And that uh, ultimately led, I'm skipping a whole bunch of steps here, so forgive me for those of you who are much more well-versed than I'm giving credit to the history. But the point here is that there came about an opportunity when there's still where the carpet of the, of the valley was still plantations and tree farms and, and fruit farms, fruit tree farms. Uh, we all of a sudden had people creating chips and out of that Fairchild Semiconductor happened. And from Fairchild Semiconductor, we ended up with Bob Noyce and the Traitorous Eight. They ended up creating uh, ultimately what became Intel. And mm -hmm. Intel was the massive change agent. So it's a whole lot of buildup. But what pulled my parents here? What pulled my dad, who was an engineer by training? What pulled my father here, who's, who's very much a technical, he had a mechanical engineering, electrical engineering background, was this high demand for people like him to help support U.S. government initiatives that were satisfying needs of the space race. Well, it's interesting you come to the space race as one of the igniting factors of Silicon Valley. You know who writes about that a lot, it seems, is Stephen King. He describes being in a movie theater when he was a child and them stopping the movie and the house manager come out and saying, the Russians have launched something called Sputnik. And this idea that the Russians were now above all of America at any given time just was this national catalyzing dread that somehow they'd gotten there first. And what did this all mean? So it's, it's interesting that, you know, fear or that tension around how do we close this gap led to a few things. I mean, you know, the Internet also sprang out of DARPA, right? They were looking for a way to distribute communications in case things went very wrong, right? So, you know, the moonshot and the Internet both came out of the same existential event in U.S. Uh, defense spending, which is... What you're highlighting here, and, and I think this is true in all of us, but it seems to raise to the fore more within the American kind of ethos, and that is fear, it can be a tremendous catalyzer and motivator. When you look at the physiology of what fear does to the human body, if you then can actually have the positive elements of that uh, catalyze and, and drive society towards a a common good towards a, a move forward. It is unbelievably powerful. The other side to it is fear can also freeze you in place and fear can create other malforming or malacting responses. So in terms of Sputnik, Sputnik was a, a toaster that barely managed to get into Leo, right. to low Earth orbit, uh, blinked for a while. But what it did is it caused us, it caused the American psyche to see itself as behind, which it interpreted as an existential threat, which in, especially in the time of mutual assured destruction, which caused us to really focus. And I'd say one of the geniuses of Kennedy was that he didn't say, we need to go build a whole bunch of missiles to blow up the world. He instead said, we need to go uh, put man on the moon because that's gonna allow us to have a common goal that, that supersedes all of these, these lower earth concerns and it really helps catalyze this, this energy into a positive focus. And that's a very macro way of looking at it, like this common goal, which then shifts an entire economy 
or an entire Western way of thinking, the entire NATO alliance, everything becomes kind of pulled into this, literally, moonshot, you know, where we get that expression. And when you, you bring that down even to the micro level then, suddenly, and you think a lot of startups will talk about having that common goal or that common mission, even if that common mission is to deliver pizza 10 minutes faster than the next guy. These unifying principles seem to drive a lot of the psychology for change. Like we all need to get there because. Agreed. And I, But let, let's, let's actually continue that, that analogy because it's apt both to the space race in many ways was a, a bit of a, of a, a template for what you're describing. So the, the large mission set was we're going to stick a man in a suit on the moon. All right, now we got to figure out how to do that. How do you build the rocket ship? How do you build the uh, life support system? How do you get the guy back home? How do you get them there? How do you actually shoot something so it goes to where it is in a meaningful way? And when it gets there, it's not going so fast that you're flying by the place. So there's it's a multivariate, multivariable problem that any one of those problem sets actually can be re-leveraged for other purposes beyond just that activity. So how did that catalyze the valley? So I talked about how people thought maybe it'd be an easier way to, to guide our spaceships with, with chips. And that had to do with weight is a huge consideration. The more we got to pack into that spaceship, the more we thrust we got to put behind it to get it up into space. Further, the, the more complex the system is, the more moving, uh, literally moving parts we include into it, things like vacuum tubes, because computers were all vacuum tubes well into the 60s and That's including right. in the 60s. You end up having tremendous fragility in the system. So the government had, government said, we're going to do this. It put the money and the initiative behind it. And it acknowledged from the beginning that it was going to create a whole set of sub ecosystems in order to make this thing happen. That in turn allows entrepreneurs, that in turn allows folks who want to make a big change within what's going on, on the planet to take a piece of that much larger mission and then create businesses out of it. And so I talked about that catalyst that, that brought forward. So what Intel came about because of Fairchild Semiconductor, which came about mostly to try and demonstrate how moving from transistors into integrated circuits was a way of further miniaturizing compute power and also further having the opportunity to ruggedize that compute power, which was mission critical if you wanted to send people up and bring them back down on, on, on the moon. So how many companies, let alone how many individuals, were going to have the money to back that type of endeavor. Thankfully for, for all of us, there was the government and this mission set of going to space that enabled us to see the formation of these businesses. That in turn caught on, which in turn created a demand pull for the talent stack of my dad because so many of him came to the Valley that in turn created a large need for more teachers, which pulled my mom here. So the, that critical mass component, because you had one mission set that got broken down, driven by a focus area, a focused initiative based on originally on fear, is very much why I'm here. This podcast is being brought to you by the folks at Shred Capital. At Shred Capital, we're looking for ferocious startups and fearless founders that are taking their first or ideally their second swing at a game-changing new venture. We provide business optimization consulting. We provide non-dilutive financing. We provide a shoulder to cry on, and we want to lead, seed, or syndicate your first equity investment. So check us out, Shred Capital. That's at shredcapital.com or Shred Capital at any of your favorite social media platforms. I'm not sure if you've read uh, Steve Johnson. He talks about, in one of his books, 
how good ideas happen. And part of his thinking on that is very much what you just described, is you get creative, ingenious, entrepreneurial people, and you build up, again, almost like a nuclear bomb, a critical mass of those folks in a geographically constrained area. And they're more likely to bounce off each other, right? They're more likely to meet in coffee shops or at events or at companies or socially with other people that are like-minded. And all those little micro-interactions create these sparks of innovation or ideas that would form that would not be able to form if that grouping of people was not so concentrated in such a small area where those interactions are normal. I mean, people talk today about, or before the pandemic at least, Uber pool. Like you would get into an Uber and you'd be pooling and you would find yourself having interesting conversations with other people jumping in and out of your car because they would be more like you than somebody on the subway or on the bus. Absolutely. And a brief anecdote, uh, uh, very much a Silicon Valley anecdote, there's a coffee shop called Phil's. It's um, uh, very unique in terms of it, it has very, it takes its baristas almost more to a sommelier for, for coffee. Well, there, it is very much the place to go and get your coffee and it's made directly for you, which creates long lines. And I have personally seen this where you see people all waiting in line and the guy in front is doing something on his phone, or is likely he's product testing his latest mobile app, which causes someone nearby or someone behind him to ask about it. And all of a sudden you have the very interchange you're describing. Now, the, the positive side of that on a big picture is that it leads to the type of creative juices, that leads to the type of creative collaboration that makes these even more successful. On the, on the risk side of it is that also means you have a much more fungible talent pool and it makes sure that the best ideas, the most compelling and attractive ideas have an opportunity to attract high quality talent. So coming to the Valley is going to give you access to tremendous talent and it also will encourage you to always be best in breed to continue to attract your talent as the other best in breeds are trying to attack, <laughs> trying to attract your talent as we speak. So true. You know, I never thought of the lines in Phil's, and I'm a Phil's evangelist. When I go down to the valley, as Engineer Mike will tell you, I make right for the Phil's. I never thought of the lines as a feature as opposed to a bug, but the interactions you're describing, absolutely true. Like just that forced social interaction of just waiting time. And this that, is a critical part. So if someone's yeah. looking to go to a, either create a Silicon Valley or go to a Silicon Valley, a very often overlooked piece is what is allowing those social juices to flow. So the Valley is cited because of the quality of the universities. It's cited because of the critical mass of global companies who set up technology and innovation hubs looking for small companies. It's, it's very much cited for the amount of risk capital through venture capital and, and early stage private equity that's looking to facilitate that growth. So you have in one fell swoop, this place where you can meet quality people that have key talent, that have above average uh, experience set coming out of, out of university. You have a critical mass of companies that are looking to connect with you. So you have a chance a much faster path to market. You have capital that's looking to capitalize and, and, and enable and accelerate the growth of these companies. That's all happening. But what maintained that in the beginning and what maintains it moving forward is that social interaction. And so for the Valley is tremendous. But look for other places that have that similar, doesn't have to be the same level of critical mass, but if you've got something approaching that, and maybe it's within a more narrow kind of innovation field, but it has that social component that allows and encourages this type of, of interaction between groups, that's where you tend to find that the innovation engine, the flywheel of innovation spins more freely and spins more readily. 
So places, you know, it's, it makes sense that New York started to materially catch up and started to materially impact things. And that's because it has all of those social interactions built into it. It has that critical mass built into it. And the FinTech orientation among others and the creative orientation was a logical fit within its history. It makes sense that Austin is starting to really catch up in this regard because you have, not, it's not just South by Southwest, it's the ethos and that Texan feel of go and connect with each other and, and go out and do and be active and intermingle with each other. It's these type of places that uh, you're gonna start seeing the real uh, real creative juices continue to grow, not just the Valley. Well, you also see two other things in those centers that I know a bit better, perhaps. New York's a tough date. It is tough to live in New York, right? So you find people that naturally gravitate towards there are a bit more ballsy. Like they're, they're going there for a reason. They want to be there. They're willing to kind of take on an, an unquiet life that they may not have had in Cleveland or Cincinnati or wherever. In Austin, you get that kind of, even though it's Austin, you get that Texas vibe, right? Because let's face it, I mean, when you are starting a new venture, right, whether it's a technology-driven startup or any kind of new venture, it could be a theater company, it could be a nonprofit, you want to be in good company. You want to be around other people that are taking the same risks. And that may be a, like a deeply rooted psychological part of being human is you want to be in company when there's lines around. So if you're in Silicon Valley, what creates almost a euphoria is the sense of like highly motivated community, as you're saying, taking the same sorts of risks. And with that cross-pollination of talent and ideas and people, it gives you a sense that you're not going it alone, right? Which I think is a different psychology than a founder who is maybe somewhere well off the grid, taking a very different kind of risk set. And they're trying to find ways to overcome that psychological anxiety of being a founder, maybe a solo founder, in a place where they're very much an outlier, compared to being like in Silicon Valley where you can't swing a cat in a Phil's line without hitting six other founders. Let, let me uh, riff on two aspects of what you just shared. I, com I completely agree with you. So first, in, in, in the instance you talked about uh, the type of people to move to New York, to, to move to Silicon Valley, what we have consistently seen is that it takes a certain approach, a certain mindset, uh, a toughness I think is fair to also include in this, to make the decision to remove yourself from your comfort zone of your network, from your friend network, from your family network, from your business networks of wherever you're from, and then drop into a very different place with the focus that you're gonna be able to capitalize and dominate in that space. That takes a special type of person. And there's a distinction between hubris and delusion and saying, no, I'm gonna go in and, and make a difference here. So that in and of itself, the successful startup that makes that decision and then acts on that decision to change into the New Yorks and the Silicon Valleys of the world, that already is indicating something about that company. They're acknowledging what it's gonna mean when they get there and they're looking to capitalize on that. So completely agree with you that, that from a, this also goes back to the fear question. It's very often that it's that fear of losing that separation or that connectivity. It's that, that fear of leaving the known to go to the unknown that prevents a lot of CEOs from making that bold, making that difficult, making that hard decision. And what, what I'm finding often is that usually is an indicator that there's a ceiling on the amount of growth because there's a ceiling on the amount of risk that's going to be willing to be borne by this business. There's a ceiling on the amount of exposure that this business is willing to take to perhaps better competitors or perhaps a different approach or, or perhaps to, to, to the risk, as I said earlier, of losing key talent uh, in the line it fills. 
And so it doesn't necessarily mean that business is not going to be viable. And it doesn't mean that the business doesn't have a place. But if your mission set, again, let's go with the venture perspective. The venture and the reason why I like this parallel between the moonshot and venture, and that's why you hear moonshots, it's because how is it that what you're changing isn't just changing your business, isn't just changing your industry, but at its peak is actually going to be creating and shifting support ecosystems and supply chains that are affected by what you're doing. Uber, as an easy example, look at the impact that Uber has had beyond simply the, the taxi business. Look at the impact that Google has had across the board when it comes to the internet. If the CEO in question is not comfortable making that hard choice, the fear prevents them as opposed to motivates them to go to New York, it's the likelihood they're going to continue to take the risks that Google capitalized on, that Uber's on. That's, that's, that's absolutely mission, mission important. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to look at it. And it occurs to me that unless you are in some way sociopathic, you are aware of the risks of starting a company or starting any venture. You're aware of the risks to you reputationally or personally or to your relationships, your family. These are all costs you're bearing that you might not bear if you just took a safer route for yourself professionally or personally. But you're motivated by that drive to affect change of some kind. But I think you may agree with me that the drive to change and the natural inclination towards fear, they, they probably go hand in hand for most people. You probably need as a founder to recognize that you're venturing into uncharted territory. And that's not always going to feel pleasant. Absolutely. Um, so here's what is, what is it that these core entrepreneurs are doing? They're going into entrenched businesses. They're going into entrenched industries. They're going to people because you're going to be looking into to enter very large markets with large amounts of capital and large amounts of revenue. You're going to be going into these places and saying, guess what? My way's better and I'm going to eat your lunch. That is that's not just, it's chutzpah if it's just, right? Just, I'm going to do this. But if you really have confidence that these small shifts, this different approach, this technological innovation is going to, you know, these small levers are going to have a real impact on that market, that you're, you're going to be going to folks who are going to look at you and, from their suits across their mahogany tables with long histories of high revenues and are going to be going, who are you? That, that's terrifying. On top of that, to an earlier point you were saying, your family, your friends are going to be saying, why is it you're living on top ramen? Why is it you're never at home? Why don't you get a real job? So another advantage of going to places where there are lots of startups, going to communities that have a lot of startup element to it, it's because you have a peer group that says this insane drive, this insane decision of trying to change the world actually is worth it. And there's groups who can commiserate with you who can share how it is that you manage and, and how it is that you mitigate that fear. And more importantly, most of all, how is it that you capitalize and motive? How does that fear motivate you and motivate your team to be successful? This, the hero story, having other people do it, having access to other examples of where folks have gone through adversity and have, have gone through the different challenges, overcome them and succeeded, no matter how you put it, it's easier to follow the person plowing through the snow than to be at the front of the line. Yeah, very true. And, you know, and it's funny because I think in tandem with that, even in, maybe maybe even especially in those clusters where you've got this high concentration of founders and startups and innovation happening, where it's lionized, right? I think we get with that at the same time, this ideal CEO figure, 
this Byronic hero with the, you know, wire rim glasses and the dark turtleneck who, you know, has a certain way of carrying themselves and their company for it in the world. And I think you almost have a generation of founders that wear that like a costume almost. Like they subordinate their fears, their natural anxieties, or even their personality to some extent, their managerial style, in order to present to their investors, to their peers, to their staff, I am this person, you should be following me. And I'm not sure that they're always well served by that way of masking what really is probably going on with them and their company. To follow your thread, first of all, for those of you listening to us who are, and you know directly, being a startup CEO, you are absolutely alone on an island in the middle of a crowd. You have so many people who have such high expectations of you. Your employees that you're hiring need you to be the leader to ensure success because they've hitched their, they're, they're heading to the moon and they're building a rocket on the way. You have your partners who have high expectations for you to be that small lever that's going to move that, that large mountain. And of course, you have your board who's incredibly supportive and your investors who are incredibly supportive, but they need to hit their fiduciary responsibility. They need to get the returns they're looking for. So you have all of these competing positive entry points into you with all of these competing expectations on you. you can, you're constantly surrounded. You're in constant communication. But who is it that you have as, as a, a peer sounding board? That's why oftentimes uh, the founding team, when you've got at least in the early stages, a small founding team where you do have one person who's, who's the head or leading, but they have that ability to have some level of commiseration uh, definitely helps. Also tapping into other CEOs who are dealing with a lot of the same challenges and will continue to deal with a lot of the same challenges that you are is a good sounding board. And a big part of this kind of goes back to the theme of, of what we're talking about here. My angle here is not how is it we mitigate fear? How do we mask fear as you're describing? But how is it that we leverage that actually as a leadership tool, which sounds crazy, right? Uh, how is it that fear actually becomes a leadership tool of oneself? And then how is it we are matriculate and matriculate that out to, to the organization to really help bring them to, to focus? And this would be and this would be my point is I think you've nailed it because you wearing your investor hat now, you folks know when you look at a prospect, when you see the numbers, you know, you can smell the blood in the water if there's something wrong with that company. So Fear as a leadership technique, I think, is something that has to be mastered. Whereas I think a lot of folks will approach that moment of saying, no, 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 everything is fine, right? Despite the fact that probably things aren't fine, you know? In fact, probably companies don't find a place of fine for a long time, if ever. But it seems to me we have a generation of startup CEOs that feel they can't have that fear as a, as a lever for a frank discussion, right? I mean, I've had people tell me, well, you know, of course I'd give this investor a board seat, but I try not to tell them anything. And I'm like, well, why would you do that? That seems like a recipe for disaster in not even the long run, even the medium term. So, so uh, how there's so many things that are important there. Let me let me jump on a, a couple of them. First, the, the, the stage of the company. So one of the things we talked about was how looking at the financials is going to give us a clear indication of the, the success or the risk of the business. And, and I would, especially at a later stage, the longer the company's been around, the more data we have to work with, then the more true that statement. That's a truism, but the, even the more true that becomes. Uh, but the financials themselves can also hide other things. You can have 
revenue companies that may have cash flow problems and or they may have some existential tech debt that has not yet been exposed or they may have some some contract risk that because the revenues are coming in are not yet exposed so there's there's a whole host of things that can be happening within a business that affect its success trajectory where and especially early on you really are as an investor and even as a strategic partner or a strategic customer you're very much investing in the company's team, in the, the management team of the business. And, and a big part of that is how does this team deal with adversity? When the going gets rough, because it will, and it will get rough repeatedly, and when they need to get down on their hands and knees to crawl through the glass, and it's going to happen repeatedly, how is it that this team is going to react to that situation? And how does the team in turn lead the business individually? And then, of course, for the overall organization through that time period. And then the ones that really stand out, how is it that that experience actually propels them forward and drives them to create systems or approaches that propels them forward to get ready for the next time they've got to crawl through glass because it's coming. And it's not a matter of I pass that and I'm good, but it's a constant uh, self-reflection and constant self-focus on how do I improve my state to get through the next one. And that, again, let's go back to the fear question. Fear for some folks freezes you in place. Fear for some folks leads to denial. Or the worst case is the one you highlighted, fear leads to putting on a mask. And yes, there is an element of fake it till you make it, especially early on. And yes, you need to have a very consistent interface and a very consistent engagement with the different constituents I talked about uh, a moment ago. You need to have that consistency. That's a key thing. Investors are very much looking for confidence in competence within the team. And if there is a mask, if there is a, a persona, if the persona is there to have a common interface, that's one thing. If the persona is the interface and is what is brought by that individual, that will get teased out. The more sophisticated investors, the more FaceTime investors with that, you know, someone who just puts money in, give me a call in three years, how it does, they're not going to have that same FaceTime. The people who are meaningfully wanting to contribute on the board, the people who are meaningfully wanting to engage with that company, you're going to get a feel for that element. And what that does at the very minimum, it puts this feeling in your gut. And that feeling in your gut is saying, you know what, I'm not sure what's going on here, but something's going on here. And when you feel that, especially if you've done this rodeo a few times, you listen to that gut. And you may once or twice try and see if you can uh, you can connect it. But if the persona dominates as opposed to the relationship, you'll find this type of investor is going to start to back off. A very common, to your point, a very common concern you I hear with some of my peers is the CEO is only able to tell us the positive. The CEO is only able to tell us what's going on. And even when they tell us negatives or, or concern points, they're the, the old, I turn my concern point into an actual pathway to success. And, and there's a place for that. But when you're in an early stage company and you're having this conversation with the board, if you have confidence in your competence and you recognize that at the end of the day, the board doesn't want to drive the company, the board wants you to drive the company, then how is it that you leverage these rough spots? How do you expose these concerns in a way that the board can help dialogue with you and help provide value to you, perhaps open different doors or acknowledge different, uh, different resources that help you work through it? Because the other thing we see is within certain CEOs, they literally, this is the worst of all, is when your fear causes you to become blind to your own issues. 
when your fear causes you to look to either run in front of it or around it as opposed to address what that is. Because there's always going to be an opportunity to continue that for a while. But the longer you sidestep or avoid your fear, the more debt you're going to have to pay when you finally address it. Okay, so for this episode, part one of two, we've got to put a bit of a pin in it there. Come back, listen to the second part of this. Catch up where Stuart and I talk about this cult of startups, the cult of the black turtleneck sweater, the persona that people seem to think equates success. But in fact, I think maybe, as you'll see, drives them down a path to maybe a much quicker failure. But Mike, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, Mike Rosen is our producer here for What Scares Startups. Uh, you've worked for different companies. You've worked for different startups. Some have scaled magnificently. Some have floundered desperately. What do you make of that mass, the people that you've worked with? And do you think there's something to that, that idea that people wear a persona because it's a shield or because they think that's the particular chess piece they're supposed to be? I think that really depends on the individual. I've definitely seen and felt different levels of discomfort when watching shows like Silicon Valley and how much those resonate with different environments that truly exist in those spaces. And I think that it's it's hard to avoid the awareness of that sort of black turtleneck CEO vibe that exists. And I think that some people, especially in moments of desperation and, and moments of feeling uncertain, maybe seem to lean on that because they think that that's what success looks like, but quite often what I've seen is that it's really about doing the real gut check, being genuine and being honest with yourself and with everybody else that seems to be the most effective way to actually get through things as opposed to, you know, this this facade to try and fake it till you make it in those instances where you can't really fake it. Very well put, very well put. That's it for part one. Thanks for making us part of your day. Check out part two, where Stuart gets into a much deeper sense of, can you take these lessons from Persona? And can you take the founder out of that secondary state and let them be a little more truthful? And how does that pull you towards success that much quicker? So if you liked episode one, please come back for episode two. This is What Scares Startups. I'm Matt Toner. Thank you for your time. Okay, so that will do it. We don't got next. The pod is done for the day. We'd like to thank our guest. We'd like to thank producer Mike in the control room for all of his thoughts and feedback and wisdom, as well as his technical skills. This was What Scares Startups, a pod that explores the neuroses, the anxieties, the formless things that go bump in the night for startups and founders and investors throughout this tech ecosystem. Whether you're in Silicon Valley, New York, or Saskatoon, it's a common shared neuroses that we're all working very hard to overcome. So you can check us out online, wherever good podcasts are found. And if you want to check out our sponsors at Shred Capital, that is shredcapital.com and found on all your favorite social platforms, your LinkedIn's, your Facebook's, your Twitter's. We tweet, we share. Hopefully you come back for the next episode. And if you have an idea or especially neurotic founder you'd like us to talk with, Please get in touch. That's all.